Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan, and I love that you used our full name. I had to do it, didn't I? I couldn't help myself. Definitely. Um, thank you everybody who's got in touch recently about last week's episodes. So our three-parter about the fire at the Stardust. Um, really, really amazing the sort of feedback we're getting. It's been really lovely of everybody to reach out, and I'm, I'm really glad I was able to cover the case and to do it justice for the guy who asked us to cover it, as well as to the number of people who've actually got in touch and said that they're local and they knew the case. So yeah, really amazing. Thank you if you got in touch with us, guys. Yeah, it's proved to be really emotive, uh, really struck a chord with a lot of people, didn't it? So um, so yeah, as Bethan said, thank you to everybody who got in touch. Um, also, thank you to all of our new Patreon supporters. Uh, so we had somebody sign up with no name, um, but thank you very much. Uh, we also had Joko Moo, Tanya, Caroline Walker, Sarah Jane Jarvis, Jackie Hutchinson, Michael Beckhurst, and then Gina Judd, who has just become an annual patron. Thank you, Gina. And then also Laura Parisi and Julie Davis, who have both become annual patrons. Thank you so much. So many of you are signing up to support us through Patreon and... We just can't believe it, really. We're so grateful to each and every one of you for taking the time to sign up and for throwing your hard-earned cash at us. It makes a a huge difference. It's amazing. It really is. Um, And like Mark said, we just can't quite believe it. Whenever we see that email come through, it's it's amazing. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, We've just launched our Patreon exclusive competition uh, for this month, so you can win a signed copy of The Lie She Told by Catherine Yaff. Uh, we've also got a double deck selection box by Cadbury's and um, because you guys have asked for it we've also got a mug uh, with uh, the words Tracy Loves Cock inscribed on it uh, as well as all of the Seeing Red logo. So um, if you want to be in with a chance to win then you need to be a patron of the show. If you're not already then you can head over to our page at patreon.com slash Podcast. I'm loving the case you've chosen because it's a case that I don't know much about but is just so crazy and I'm so glad you're covering it. Yeah, it's a real um, minefield, I think. It's just plain weird, really. Uh, it's probably one of the most bizarre cases in UK true crime history. And that really is no exaggeration. Not only is it a bizarre crime, it's also deeply disturbing. Even the most skilled crime fiction writers would struggle to put together a story as dark and as twisted as what I'm about to tell you. On the 29th of June in 2003, in the market town of Altrincham in Greater Manchester, loud sirens filled the air as police cars and ambulances came to a screeching halt outside the entrance of an alleyway in the town centre. Curious onlookers witnessed emergency workers rush down the alleyway and crouch near to the body of what appeared to be a young teenage boy. 
The boy, semi-conscious and bleeding heavily from two life-threatening stab wounds to his chest and stomach, was perilously close to death. The weapon, a large kitchen knife, lay on the ground beside him. Now, knife crime in most parts of the UK is a significant and ongoing issue, but the fashionable and upmarket town of Altrincham has long enjoyed exceedingly low crime rates, so this incident was extraordinary. The seriously wounded boy was rushed to hospital where he underwent urgent life-saving surgery. He was quickly identified by police, however due to his age at the time, he can only legally be referred to here as John. As surgeons operated on John, his life hung in the balance. His heart stopped twice on the operating table, requiring him to be resuscitated, and he suffered internal bleeding so severe that he experienced multiple organ failure. One of the stab wounds had pierced his kidney and severely lacerated his liver. His gallbladder was so irreparably damaged that it had to be removed altogether, and miraculously the surgeon's hard work paid off and they were able to stabilise John's condition. He was put under close observation in the intensive care unit, but doctors were unable to say with any certainty whether he would make a full recovery or even if he would survive his injuries. The extent of the damage had prevented his lungs from functioning on their own, leaving him reliant on a ventilator. When police began investigating the incident, they found that the main witness to the attack was the boy's teenage friend, who had been present when the attack had taken place. Once again, due to his age at the time and subsequent legal restrictions, this boy can only be referred to here as Mark. So according to Mark, both he and John were taking a shortcut through the alleyway after visiting McDonald's, when they were accosted by a man in his 20s who tried to rob them at knife point. There was resistance, followed by a brief scuffle, which then ended with John being stabbed twice. The attacker then fled the scene. There was a clear sense of urgency amongst detectives, as they feared the assailant would strike again. An EFIT was produced detailing the attacker's physical description, and the police published the image through various media sources in a bid to identify the man. The next step, of course, was to analyse CCTV in the area, and the police couldn't believe their luck when they found a fully functioning camera aimed directly at the alleyway's entrance on the other side of the street. People do like to moan about how much CCTV we have, but in cases where the police are able to find something that works and is at the right place, it's just so helpful. It, it is, and I think without, without, without giving too much away, without that CCTV footage, this case would not have been solved. Um, so it was purely down to that footage that led police on the trail um, to, to finding out the culprit. So when police watched that CCTV footage, they were surprised to see both John and Mark disappear down the alleyway where they remained for a full 25 minutes. The alleged assailant never appeared and was nowhere to be seen. Only Mark was seen again emerging from the alleyway alone as he called for help following John's attack. The footage directly contradicted Mark's witness statement and immediately police suspected that he was not being completely honest. However, instead of immediately confronting him about the inaccuracies in his story, investigators held back for a while. Instead, they visited John, whose condition was still critical, but now on the hopeful side, and they asked him to provide his statement. 
Although reluctant at first to talk to them, John soon confirmed what the officers had begun to suspect, that there had been no robbery, and that it had been his best friend Mark who had attempted to murder him. Mark was immediately arrested and taken in for questioning. At first, he refused to cooperate with detectives. Undeterred by this, the police decided to confiscate the personal computers of both Mark and John in order to conduct a deep analysis of their hard drives and their recent web activity. What they found shocked them so much that some detectives thought it had been some kind of sick, elaborate prank by colleagues. However, as they dug deeper into the history of Mark and John's unusual friendship and their individual private lives, it soon became terrifyingly apparent that something appalling had taken place between them, and the established distinctions of perpetrator and victim became bizarrely blurred and up for debate. You are painting such a picture here, Mark, and I am loving it. This is, oh my god, it's just so weird and crazy. And it just gets crazier. And before we get there, before we get into the nitty gritty of today's story, let's hear from the first of this week's show sponsors. So back to the story. In the early 2000s, the internet as we know it today wasn't nearly as advanced. Sites such as Facebook, YouTube and Gmail did exist, but they were very much still in their infancy. Instead, the popular virtual hangouts amongst teenagers back then was the myriad of internet chat rooms, MSN Messenger being easily the most popular. The most notable feature of chat rooms like MSN was that they did not require any personal details to be given, which enabled users to remain completely anonymous. Such anonymity had its upsides and its downsides, of course. On the one hand, the ability to remain anonymous provided a blanket of safety and security for users who wished to communicate freely without fear of being identified. But on the other hand, it provided the perfect platform for internet predators to groom, manipulate and engage in sexually charged conversations with their younger, more impressionable victims. Nevertheless, at its peak, MSN was hugely popular, with countless millions of users globally. I bet you used it, Bethan. Absolutely. And I, I'm going to mention this because I feel like some of our listeners will get this as well. When you fancied someone and you saw they were online, you'd like log off, log back in, log off, log back in, just so that your name would pop up as like so-and-so's online. Oh my God, that's online, amazing. Just to get their attention. And then you'd put like your status as... Bethan and then like something and then like has a secret or like has a crush on oh something. You know, it was just awful, but it was great fun. But my parents were really, really nervous around things like this. So they'd quite regularly be like, Do you know everybody on your friends list? Do you only talking to people from school? They were quite strict with it. I'd go to my friend's house, however, and we'd go on this site called Habo Hotel, which was just a random chat room you had no idea who you were talking to and we just talked to strangers and it's so bad now when I look back but at the time we just thought it was great fun. Yeah I never used it myself but obviously knew of it and it does in in some ways it sounds so innocent like updating those kind of statuses very childlike but uh, there's the other end of the spectrum where paedophiles were active on, on MSN and did target children and groom them and there's some appalling cases and this isn't that type of case actually today it's a bit different well it's very different um, but that certainly did happen back in the day didn't it 
So another user of MSN was Mark. He was 16 years old and he was from Stockport in Manchester. So Mark was, by all accounts, a relatively normal teenager who was liked by his classmates and teachers and he was passionate about sport. He was described by family members as naive at times, but incredibly warm, friendly and kind-hearted. Mark discovered the world of online chat in 2002 when his parents brought him a computer to help him with his studies. Enticed by the convenience and anonymity of being able to interact with random users from all over the world in real time, Mark was instantly hooked and spent many hours each day online talking to girls, hoping to convert online conversations with the opposite sex into real-life hookups. One such female user who caught Mark's attention in a chat room called Manchester Teens went by the username Rachel underscore West. Mark struck up a private conversation with Rachel and he soon discovered that she was a 16-year-old Manchester local who worked in a gym close to his house. The photo she uploaded through MSN showed an attractive, athletic, blue-eyed girl with long blonde hair. Mark and Rachel seemed to hit it off immediately and it wasn't long before their conversations became flirtatious and suggestive. Mark turned on his webcam so that Rachel could see him, but to his disappointment, she was not as keen to video chat as he was. Rachel claimed that she was uncomfortable with it, and that she had previously had a bad experience. Smitten and not wanting to ruin his chances with her, Mark eased off and decided to play the long game. This meant spending hours just hanging around in the chat room, not saying much, but waiting for a notification that Rachel underscore West had entered the room. This was his cue to immediately ping her a private message so that the pair could continue flirting. One day, Rachel invited another user into their private chat room, and she introduced Mark to her younger stepbrother, a boy called John, before signing out and leaving the two of them to chat alone. Mark was frustrated at first, but he decided to stay and chat with John for a bit. The pair ended up chatting for quite a while in the end, and they really hit it off. John said that he and Rachel lived with their parents in a well-to-do area in Manchester, where they both attended private schools. As the conversation progressed over the following days, John and Mark bonded over their shared interests in movies, sports, gaming, and of course girls. John also confided in Mark about many personal problems that he was experiencing, including domestic abuse within his family, issues he was having at school with bullies, as well as his own difficulty in talking to girls. The boys didn't seem to mind the two-year age gap between them and they spent many hours online each day, talking and gaming and exploring other chat rooms and forums together. They would both switch on their webcams and engage in the kind of ridiculous, often explicit conversations that all teenage boys have. Before long, they'd become the best of friends. Despite this, for Mark, it was Rachel who he really wanted to be around. The pair would spend countless hours of the day and night talking and flirting online, and even though they had never met in person, Mark found himself falling in love with Rachel. Sometimes at her request, Mark would turn on his webcam, strip naked and perform various sexual acts for her, even though she never reciprocated. One night, he mustered up the courage to tell her how he really felt about her, telling her that he was in love with her. When Rachel responded that she was in love with him too, Mark was over the moon. He was convinced that he had found 
the one. Mark was desperate to see Rachel face to face and he tried everything to make that happen. However, Rachel's busy work schedule was constantly getting in the way and preventing a real date from happening. Blinded by his love, Mark agreed to be patient and to wait until Rachel felt comfortable showing herself on camera. God, I feel so sorry for him all through this. Yeah, he's, he's very naive. So naive. I think you can possibly see where it's headed. We won't spoil it for anyone, but I'm sure a lot of you listening will... We'll perhaps see where this is going. But I mean, even if you can see where it's going, you unless you've heard of it, you'll still have no idea oh what gosh, unfolds. No, exactly. I even know the story and I'm sure there's going to be things that shock me that I didn't know about. I'm sure. John, however, was much more available than his stepsister. So he and Mark arranged their own face-to-face offline meetups and their strong friendship soon flourished offline as well as online. By April 2003, Mark and Rachel had still not met each other in person, but they did consider themselves to be in a relationship. It was around this time that a new user going by the name of Kevin began to regularly frequent the Manchester teens chat room. From the off, Kevin began drawing a lot of attention to himself by proudly declaring that he was openly gay and that he also had a foot fetish. He also made several overly crude and vulgar remarks to other users and boasted about being a proper stalker. Not one of those pretend stalkers, but a real one. Oh, that's what you want to brag about, isn't it? Exactly, yeah, weird. Mark was not at all bothered by Kevin's presence in the chat room. In fact, he'd barely noticed him at all. However, Rachel and John were affected. They both separately confided in Mark that Kevin had been threatening them. They were also certain that they had spotted Kevin following them home from school and work. So Rachel and John are the stepbrother, stepsister, um, and Mark is the guy that has befriended them online. Kevin then began to target Mark. Over private messages, he threatened to rape and kill Rachel unless Mark did exactly as he was told by Kevin. Mark didn't buy it at first, but Kevin confronted him with very intimate and personal information about Rachel. Information only he could have known if he was really stalking her. And this was enough for Mark to become utterly convinced that Kevin was for real. Kevin agreed to leave Rachel alone forever, but only if Mark agreed to turn on his webcam, show him his feet and masturbate for him. Believing he had no choice and feeling desperate to protect the girl that he loved so much, Mark did as he was told. When he told Rachel about what he'd done to protect her, she was deeply moved and finally agreed to meet him face to face. So Mark took a 40 minute bus ride into the town of Altrincham where he and Rachel had agreed to meet at a designated spot. However, when he got there, Rachel failed to show. Mark waited in nervous anticipation for more than four hours before giving up and heading home. Bitterly frustrated, he logged onto the Manchester teens chat room hoping to see Rachel online so he could get an explanation as to why she had so cruelly stood him up. But she wasn't online that afternoon. However, Kevin was. To Mark's horror, Kevin messaged him privately and revealed that he had made good on his threats. He said he had apprehended Rachel as she'd set off to meet Mark that day, that he had raped her and murdered her. 
Kevin also taunted Mark, shaming him for not being there to protect his girlfriend like a real boyfriend would have. Completely convinced that Rachel had been killed, Mark grieved hard for the love of his life and sank into a deep, dark depression, fuelled by an extreme sense of guilt. He didn't tell his parents what he was silently going through, as he was sure they would not understand. He felt that the only person he could openly grieve with was John. After all, John was also grieving for the loss of his stepsister, and for a while they found comfort and solace in each other via many hours of web chats. Within a few days, Mark did begin to feel better, and eventually he returned to the Manchester teens' chat room in search of girls once again. Oh, see, he was really in love that first time then. (laughs) Well, I did think that, but what I would say is... Yeah, I mean, at that age, though, you um, maybe he was seeking solace in in building a new relationship with a girl on the chat room. Yeah, and I suppose he hadn't met. I think that's also part of it. They'd not actually met. He'd not even seen her. Um, And maybe deep down there was part of him that subconsciously felt this wasn't quite right. I don't know. So, um, as Bethan's kind of alluded to, uh, it didn't really take long uh, for for Mark to get over it because um, he did meet another love interest, a user named Lindsay. Just like with Rachel, Mark spent hours on end chatting and flirting with Lindsay, even going as far as opening up to her about Rachel and his sense of grief and guilt surrounding his failure to prevent her murder. Lindsay assured him that what happened wasn't his fault and she did her best to provide him with some comfort and reassurance. This made Mark even more infatuated with Lindsay and even though he had only known her for two days and neither of them had met, he did what was becoming typical of him, he confessed his undying love for her. When Lindsay reciprocated and told Mark she was falling for him too, his pain seemed to dissolve and give way to an overwhelming sense of joy. Not long afterwards, during a late night chat, Lindsay confessed to Mark her secret, that she was a low-level secret agent for MI6, the British Secret Service. I'm trying to say this with a straight face. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because I think as an adult, and like with life experience, but also with the fact that we know the internet so much more now, you just think, really? But I have to keep reminding myself, this was 2003, 2004. He is 16. I, well, maybe even younger at this point. And yeah, mm, I know what you mean, though. It's hard to kind of not think it's laughable. It's not like to him, this is all real. Yeah, and it and it is serious, and this is a serious case, and it um, we'll go on to that in more detail. We'll we'll kind of go back to where we started the episode shortly. Um, so, so obviously, Lindsay had, had told Mark that she was this secret agent for MI6, and he was stunned. And as a diehard movie lover, he was excited at the concept of dating a real life spy. His excitement did not last long, however, as Lindsay went on to explain that her true reason for being in the Manchester teens chat room in the first place was to closely monitor Mark's best friend, John. According to Lindsay, John was under close government protection because he was being targeted by known associates of the psychopath Kevin, Rachel's murderer. Because of Mark's links to the case, Lindsay asked him if he would be willing to assist the British government in tracking down Rachel's killer, this guy called Kevin. She also ordered him not to tell John that his life was in danger to protect the integrity of the ongoing investigation. 
Still pained by the guilt of letting Rachel down, excited by the prospect of becoming a secret agent, and driven by the possibility of avenging Rachel's murder, Mark needed no convincing whatsoever. He went all in on the plan. Towards the end of April in 2003, things took a bizarre turn when Mark was loitering in the Manchester teen's chat room and he saw a notification informing him that Rachel underscore West was online. Now remember, she was allegedly murdered by Kevin. Stunned, Mark sent her a private message and the pair began to chat. Rachel claimed that she had been held captive whilst in a coma after Kevin had attacked her that day that they were due to meet. Even more bizarrely, Rachel claimed that she had since given birth to Mark's child, which is just fucking ridiculous <laughs> because um, she'd not been in a coma for like nine months or anything and then never met in person. So they'd obviously never had sex. So why she said that, I don't know. And, and Mark rightly confronted Rachel uh, saying that basically and Good she then him. vanished. Yeah, she just then simply vanished from the chat room. Um, So Mark was left shaken and confused and she was never seen online again. Um, I told you it was bizarre. A few days later, Mark was approached privately online by a chat room user named Janet and she claimed to be a much more senior ranking member of MI6. Janet broke the sad news to Mark that his latest girlfriend, Lindsay, had recently been killed in action on an overseas mission. (laughs) Right, I've had my little laugh. Before Lindsay had died, however, she had reported back to Janet that Mark was intelligent, trustworthy and a promising candidate for future MI6 missions. Janet didn't beat around the bush. She offered Mark a job as a spy with MI6, telling him that he would make millions of pounds, be sent on dangerous assignments all over the world and even meet the Queen and the UK Prime Minister. Janet pointed out, however, that Mark would first need to complete a few low-level missions to prove his worthiness. If successful in those, he would be transported to London to receive his training, his own firearm and a licence to kill. Mark didn't hesitate in taking advantage of what he believed was a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and he eagerly accepted Janet's proposal. Shortly thereafter, Janet briefed Mark via online chat with his first top-secret assignment, to act as a bodyguard to a fellow spy who was also based in Manchester. As Mark read Janet's instructions, his initial excitement soon turned into shock and confusion. The fellow spy that Mark had to protect was none other than his best friend John, who according to Janet was really an MI6 operative who went by the code name of James Bell. Although he made it clear that he was up for the job at hand, Mark was brave enough to query why John was so important. Did he not also think to query why they were monitoring him and he was under government protection secretly but now he's also a spy? Yeah. Hmm... Janet told Mark that this James Bell possessed the geographical coordinates for the exact location of a large locked safe that was sitting on the seabed at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. She said that safe contained a staggering £560 billion worth of jewels and precious diamonds. Other enemy nations had come to know of the safe's existence, but only John knew exactly where it was located and the combination sequence needed to open it, and that made him a prime target for foreign enemy operatives and a highly valuable asset to the UK government. 
Therefore, Mark's mission was to keep John safe from harm or abduction. The only catch was that Mark had strict orders that John was not under any circumstances to know that Mark was protecting and monitoring him as a fellow operative. Doing so, Janet explained, would seriously jeopardise the mission. So Mark was hyped. He knew that he could pass this test with flying colours because he and John were already best friends and Mark figured that because they hung out so often anyway, John would never suspect a thing. From that moment on, Mark and John became almost inseparable and they spent almost all of their spare time together. Their friendship intensified to such an extent that it even caught the attention of both their parents who decided to meet one another in order to ensure their son's friendship was safe and appropriate. All the while and behind the scenes, Mark was discreetly in constant communication with Janet telling her anything she wanted to know about John, his behaviour, his whereabouts and the conversations they'd been having. Janet also warned Mark that he was under close surveillance now by other operatives in the area and that failure to obey commands for any reason would have severe consequences for him. In the spy game she told Mark, failure can often mean death. This revelation made Mark feel both scared and excited. He had no doubt that he was being watched and he was more determined than ever not to fail in his mission. One day, as Mark provided Janet with his daily report on John's activities, she said she was beginning to have doubts about his commitment to the agency. Mark argued that he was fully committed but Janet remained unconvinced. And so she gave Mark a chance to prove his loyalty by performing oral sex on John. Mark was uncomfortable with this. As far as he was concerned, he was a heterosexual male and not into John in that way. However, after some intense pressure and manipulation from Janet, Mark agreed to go ahead with this unusual mission. That weekend, when Mark stayed over at John's house, he did exactly as Janet had told him. The two boys drank alcohol, watched pornography and engaged in oral sex. God, it's absolutely horrendous how, like, groomed he is and... Yeah, how much he's been manipulated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. True to her word, Janet got in touch shortly afterwards and she congratulated Mark on passing his final test mission and confirmed him as a fully recognised MI6 agent. Mark was to meet the Prime Minister Tony Blair. He was also set to receive a firearm, half a million pounds in cash, a licence to kill and he was told that he would soon be taken to a secret location in London to commence his training. Before Mark even had chance to process his new status in life, Janet upped the ante significantly when she asked Mark if he thought he would ever be capable of killing someone. Stunned, Mark pondered the question for a few moments and then replied, Yeah. I could. There's my answer. Janet then promptly issued Mark with his first mission as a fully certified agent. An assassination. Mark felt sick with nerves when he read Janet's message and he was forced to ask himself again whether or not he could really take a human life. As he mulled it over at his computer, his shock suddenly intensified tenfold when Janet sent over the name of Mark's assassination target fellow MI6 agent James Bell, also known as Mark's best friend, John. So before we go any further into this rabbit hole, let's hear from our second show sponsor, 
So we left the story just as Mark had been told he was to assassinate his best friend John. Mark felt like he was going to be sick and for the first time since he'd been involved with MI6 he started to think that he was now weighing over his head. He told Janet how he was feeling and she attempted to ease his troubles by telling him that he would get £80 million in compensation if he completed his mission. On top of that, she told Mark that John had just been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumour that would almost certainly kill him slowly and painfully. So, if nothing else, Mark was simply doing his friend a favour by killing him quickly. Mark asked Janet, isn't it murder when you kill someone? And she replied, not in our case, no. Later that night, as John and Mark engaged in their usual online chatter, John told Mark what he already secretly knew that he had an inoperable terminal brain tumour. Mark was saddened by the imminent death of his best friend, but it also strengthened what Janet had told him earlier, that assassinating John would be an act of mercy. With that in mind, Mark decided to go ahead with his first assassination mission. Over the days that followed, Mark and Janet spent many hours carefully and meticulously planning out John's assassination. It was decided by Janet that the killing had to be done by stabbing, so John would not be able to see it coming until it was too late, and Mark was given instructions to say the words trust me and I love you over and over again until John died. Mark was also ordered to wait with John and to watch him die to ensure the mission success, and to only then call for help. Janet would then arrive on the scene disguised as a police detective and extract Mark. He was promised protection from the police and immunity from prosecution. Finally, as a failsafe, Janet gave Mark the abort code 6969 and instructed him that if he heard or saw that code anywhere, he was to immediately abandon the mission and go straight home. At the conclusion of the planning phase, Mark wrote to Janet saying, I love him but this has to be done. God, there's one thing like manipulating someone and grooming them to give someone else a blowjob, but this is just horrendous. God, Beth, and when you say it like that, it sounds so crude. Oh, sorry. A blowjob, it's just so unlike you. That's the sort of thing I would say. To engage Um, in oral sex, this is really shocking because... Like back at the when we were talking about that part of the story, I was thinking that's horrendous how he's been manipulated. It was bad enough when Kevin made him show him his feet and do stuff. Like, but this is this is gonna completely change the rest of your life. If you take someone's life, there is no going back. Like, what the hell? Yeah, you're you're right. But even just with having to engage in oral sex and being coerced into that, that would have had um, repercussions for Mark in later life, I'm sure, because he is a oh, child yeah. at the end of the day. Absolutely. Yeah. But but you're you're absolutely right. Being hypnotised almost into committing murder is going to have severe consequences. So the following day, June the 29th in 2003, Mark arranged to meet John, his target, in Altrincham Town Centre and this now brings us full circle back to the day of the stabbing. Rather disturbingly, Mark asked John to help him shop for a new kitchen knife that day. John chose a large knife from a nearby homeware store, not knowing that he was picking out his own murder weapon. As the day wore on, Mark was almost physically sick with anxiety and he eagerly looked and listened out for the abort code 6969, but it didn't come. 
He was becoming increasingly more fidgety and paranoid and he suspected every passerby that looked at him was an undercover agent watching him and possibly getting ready to kill him if he failed on his mission. Eventually the two boys wandered into that secluded, dead-ended alleyway. It presented Mark with the perfect opportunity to complete the mission and he knew that it was now or never. Trembling with nerves, Mark pulled out the knife, turned to his best friend and said, I love you bro. He then gripped John by the arm and plunged the large knife deep into his chest. John crumpled to the floor and began to cry as he bled out. Mark knelt beside him and pleaded with him not to make any noise in case someone heard them. John looked up at Mark and said, you've killed me. Don't say that, Mark replied. Don't let that be the last thing you ever say to me. As John became more frantic, he begged Mark to call an ambulance. Still clutching the knife, he awkwardly helped John to his feet, then leaned in and whispered in his ear, trust me, before he again brutally stabbed him, this time in the abdomen. John sank to the floor and began to lose consciousness. Mark waited with John until he was sure that he was dead, then he walked out of the alleyway and dialed 999 on his phone, hopeful that Janet would arrive as promised to whisk him away to a spy hideout. But, of course, Janet never arrived. After John's hospital bed confession, Mark was placed under arrest and charged with attempted murder. He was denied bail and remanded at a young offenders facility. Throughout the initial police investigation, and during the numerous months he spent remanded in custody, Mark remained pathetically confident that Janet would eventually come and rescue him, as she had promised. But as more time went by with no sign of Janet, the MI6 super spy, Mark, the naive teenager from Manchester, finally began to consider the reality that he may have been lied to and manipulated in the cruelest of ways. Can you imagine having that realisation? That that feeling in the pit mm-hmm. of your stomach of what have I done and how much of a fool have I been? Confused, scared and racked with guilt, Mark eventually broke down and told the police everything. The stunned investigators listened in absolute disbelief as Mark revealed one bizarre tale after another. Murdered girlfriends, online psychopaths, MI6 agents, a hidden underwater safe and a diabolical assassination plot from the highest ranks of the UK government. As mentioned earlier, the story seemed so far-fetched that they initially believed Mark was simply making it all up. However, when Mark's computer was seized and his online activity scrutinised, they realised that they weren't dealing with a cold-blooded killer but an astonishingly gullible teenager who had been consistently lied to, manipulated and coerced into doing the unthinkable. The only question was, by whom? It didn't take long for the police to piece together the evidence and get the full, shocking picture. After many hours of detailed analysis of more than a quarter of a million lines of chat records, it was eventually discovered that all the characters in Mark's tale, Rachel, Kevin, Lindsay and of course Janet, didn't exist. They were simply byproducts of the twisted imagination of one singular person. Mark had been brutally and mercilessly toyed with over a period of many weeks and the mastermind of the diabolical scheme to coerce a gullible teenager to commit a heinous act of murder was none other than John himself. 
John, a 14-year-old child, had created several online personas in a desperate bid to orchestrate his own elaborate suicide. After extensive questioning of John's family, investigators came to understand that John had been plagued by severe mental health issues, eating disorders and confusion around his sexuality after enduring years of relentless bullying at school. I feel a little bit bad for calling him an arsehole now. He's definitely an arsehole, but... You can kind of understand a little bit of what went on. Yeah, there is mitigating circumstances, I feel for him. So as a result of all of this, uh, he developed a strong fixation on the internet, uh, particularly on chat rooms and other online activity, presumably because the internet allowed him to be a person that he wanted to be. And the more John engaged with the online world, the more his fixation became a full-blown addiction. Whilst posing as the 16-year-old Rachel West, he became captivated by the strong emotional connection that was apparent in Mark's messages. And then John began to develop romantic feelings of his own towards Mark. This was further intensified when Mark showed an interest in becoming friends with John in real life, as John didn't have any other friends and felt very much alone in the world. Before John knew what was happening, he had become hopelessly swept up in his spiral of lies, jealousy and deceit that he had created and he had to take bigger, more extreme measures to uphold the ruse. Rachel, the imaginary character that he had created himself, soon became his love rival in his own world, so John killed her off to get her out of the way. When Mark became grief-stricken and withdrawn, John then created Lindsay and things began to gradually spiral further out of control, eventually culminating in dark suicidal thoughts and then the creation of Janet, who essentially was there orchestrating the murder uh, of John. Really, really sad that the only way that he could get this guy that he'd fallen for to have some sort of sexual activity with him was to create all of these characters, and that is really, really sad. But also, oh, like, you want to kill yourself, that's your business, but making someone else murder you in your elaborate suicide plan is, oh, it just breaks my heart for it, Mark. It does it's me. horrible. Yeah. It does me too, but I also really feel for John um, that he was suicidal, that he'd been having this really awful time. At 14 as well. Yeah, I I really do. And I think as we come to the end of the story, which we're we're nearly there, um, I think it it will be very interesting for everybody to hear what happens to these two boys. I think it's it's really not black and white with this at all. There's no clear cut good guy, bad guy, evil, anything, because there's so much more to it. And this is like the first case that I can think of of catfishing using mm. the internet. It really is. And it's quite common now. Um, but this this was like 17 years ago. So the following year, on May the 28th, the two boys met face to face after almost a year apart when they arrived at Manchester Crown Court although they weren't obviously allowed to speak to each other at all. Mark remained calm and stoic as he pleaded guilty to attempted murder. John, who had made a full recovery by this point, sat hunched over and sobbed loudly as he pleaded guilty to perverting the course of justice. And in doing so, he became the first person in UK criminal history to plead guilty to the crime of incitement to murder oneself. The court heard the entire bizarre story, from the introduction of Rachel to the near-fatal stabbing of John in Altrincham. 
The stunned judge and jury made reference to how painfully gullible Mark had been, but also how convincingly John had lied and manipulated him by expertly crafting such complex characters, and eventually agreed that the con could have been perceived as genuine to a young, naive boy. The judge made it clear to the court that, under regular circumstances, the actions of both boys would result in several criminal penalties and a custodial sentence. However, recognising the exceptionally complex nature of this case, the judge sympathetically handed down non-custodial sentences to both of them, ruling that each of the boys was a victim of the other. So John and Mark were both given a three-year supervision order, which involved a ban on using the internet without strict supervision, uh, and they were also permanently barred from ever contacting each other again. And due to the ages, their ages at the time of the offence, the courts imposed very strict anonymity orders on this case, and obviously we've used pseudonyms, but the, the boys' true identities can't ever publicly be revealed by the media. Um, and because of that, we don't really know at all what's become of them. Maybe they're listening to this right now. Oh, that would be really weird. I don't like the thought of that. But that is so interesting. And I, I'm grateful to the judge for doing that, because I think, as he said, um, both of the boys was a victim of each other. And actually, yeah, like, it makes a lot of sense. And I'm glad that he did that, because it could have been very easy to just give them these really serious, um, lengthy prison sentences, the the normal criminal penalties they would have incurred. I'm glad that they didn't, and I really, really hope that they sorted themselves out and got the help that they needed. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, for me, this is a, I wouldn't say a rare case of a judge using common sense, because I think that that's their remit, and quite often they do, but it's definitely an example of common sense being used, so um, let us let us know what you think. Was that the right outcome? Do you think one of the boys was more guilty than the other and therefore perhaps did deserve a custodial sentence? You can get in touch with us in all of the usual ways. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also comment under this video on YouTube in a couple of weeks when it's up. And um, please do comment under the post on Patreon as well. Uh, we'd love to know what you think. Thank you so much for that one, Mark. That was really, really interesting. and. This actually winds down season four, doesn't it? So we'll be back in two weeks' time. It will be almost Christmas when we're back with you um, with season five. Yeah, we're taking two weeks off, so it's technically it might be kind of three weeks without an episode. Um, No, it will only be two weeks. Really? Yeah. Well, this (laughs) will be out. I'm just thinking this will be... This will be out on the 2nd of December. The next yeah. episode is three weeks later on the 23rd of December. Yeah, but then there's only two weeks without an episode. True, true. But they'll if they listen to this on the release date, they've got a three-week wait for the next one. Right, you're making it sound like we're being really, really harsh here. Let's just start this bit again and I'll just shut the fuck up. No, you it's just fine. Say, leave it in. Leave it in. Okay, fine. We'll leave it in. <laughs> so we're back in two or three weeks. Get in touch and let us know which one you think it yeah, is. Yeah, tell us what um, you think it is and we'll be back yeah. with you on the 23rd. 
Yeah, do check out our show sponsors. Don't forget stitchfix.co.uk slash red and also noom.com slash red. And if you don't currently support us on Patreon, but you would like to, we would really, really appreciate it. And you would also gain entry into our Patreon exclusive competition uh, where you can win a signed book and also a Cadbury's box of shit and uh, a mug. Uh, (laughs) But you've got to do it quickly because we're drawing the entry closes uh, kind of like midday on uh, the 4th so that's Friday so you've got two days mm-hmm. that's exciting just saying cool okay um, thanks guys we're going to have a, a really nice break and we will see you in three <laughs> sounds weeks sounds like we really need it doesn't it I think Christ. it really fucking does yeah, yeah. okay thanks, thanks for, for listening, listening we'll, we'll see you soon bye bye